and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove, and I'm joined by a man who watched most of the MLS <laughs> playoffs. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Taylor. Hello. I'm not going to say which ones. We'll see if it becomes evident. <laughs> Luckily, we're also joined by a man who watched all of the MLS mm-hmm. playoffs. His name is Joe Lowry. Joe, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks, guys, so much for having me on. It's great to be here. It's great. We're even happier that you're here. We certainly are. Because <laughs> <laughs> we are going to do a deep dive MLS review with you. We, we know, we trust you to have watched all these games yeah. at least 10 times each um, and to really know what happened in every MLS game this weekend. And if not, then we just expect you to be really good at faking it. One or the other, Joe. <laughs> one or the other. So first well, question, yeah, did, we'll you, you guys can tell. did you actually watch all six games? I did, yeah. I, I watched a lot of soccer this weekend. Um, I think my eyes were bleeding a little bit at the end of Saturday. <laughs> Sunday was nice. It was only two games, so that was that was fine. But I made it through all six, so we're good to go. So with that in mind, actually, first question, an easy question, hopefully. Was there one that was your favorite for whatever reason? Like, was it the very last one that kept hope alive, or was it the very first <laughs> one because it was the very first one? Yeah, where was the, the least bleeding? Yeah. I think the least bleeding was at the beginning. Uh, um, on Saturday, the Atlanta-New England game in the morning, my time, was a, was a fun way to spend my early Saturday morning. But I think my favorite game was probably that Seattle-Dallas game on, mm-hmm. on a little later on Saturday. That one was absolutely fantastic. Just high energy going back and forth. It was a really fun one to watch. Drama, drama, drama. All right, but uh, Joe is starting chronologically, which is very helpful for, yes. for us because that's how we were going to approach it. It is. But before we do that, we should probably talk about uh, another reason why we're talking to Joe today. The future um, mm-hmm. of the Total Soccer Show includes a spin-off show hosted by Mr. Joe Lowry. We've sort of, we'll be talking to Joe behind the scenes and we're mm-hmm. planning um, for Joe to host his own Major League Soccer Show as part of the Total Soccer Show Network. Um, Joe, did you know about this? I did, yeah, no. I, I was fully aware of this. Thankfully, you guys didn't just spring it on me like this. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm fully on top of, of what's going on here, thankfully. That's good, that's good, that's good. So I've been texting the right person. And, and, um, and, yeah. and the idea, that would be awkward otherwise, yeah. if you were texting Don Garber. Uh, but yes, the idea is to have Joe do a sort of tactics-heavy show, but with sort of player analysis, team analysis, news updates, all that good stuff, but a lot of the kind of tactical elements that we've come to expect from Joe's writing and from Joe's appearances on this show. Is, is, that, is that a fair summary, Joe? I think that's a great summary. I, the goal of the show, in my mind, is to give people a little bit more insight into what's happening on the field when I watch MLS. And so some of that is going to be tactics because that's something that I really enjoy doing. But there also will be some other components to it as well. We'll get into some some narrative-based topics and some news and some some player analysis like you guys already talked about. So I'm really excited to get this project underway, and I think I think it's going to be a really fun one. Sounds good. I give it five stars already. As um, well, you should. The problem is that we keep saying it and the show yeah. because there is no title as of yet. Jo- Joe's been throwing around some ideas. Uh, he didn't like the TSS MLS show, uh, but we are <laughs> going to use that as that wasn't a suggestion, by the way. Uh, we are going to use that as a hashtag, t- uh, hashtag TSS MLS. So if people have suggestions for an idea for sh- for Joe's show name or even Joe's on air personality, because obviously <laughs> you have to have one of those. I think you should keep his regular personality. You think? Yeah, but we do need a show title. So if you've got an idea idea for what you think this spin-off Major League Soccer show should be called. Yeah, please tweet it with the hashtag TSSMLS and let us know what the show should be called. I don't think there's another Dr. Joe out there, so I think we should just go with Dr. (laughs) Joe and I don't see how that could be awkward or weird. (laughs) 
Oh, we can go ahead and trademark that now. All right, cool. Perfect, well, perfect. Right? Do we have any bad suggestions for what the show should be called? I mean, uh, I mean, uh, the the madman of the bandit. I don't know <laughs> if you want to go like the '90s uh, shock jock. Rest. How about MLS Cup of Joe? Oh my god! Oh. Oh, that physically hurt me. That physically hurt me. <laughs> so please, somebody come up with a name better than that, or that might be what it really is. <laughs> Hashtag TSSMLS to stop it being MLS Cup of Joe. I just want to keep stealing other show names. Like, could we do Morning Joe? Could we go? Let's just go with like the Joe Rogan experience Starbucks and just straight up that. steal that. <laughs> what could go wrong? We should call it the Joe Rogan MLS experience, yeah. and we get a bunch of accidental downloads. The Joe Not Rogan. <laughs> just make not really tiny. Uh, Joe, we're not going to do that to you. I promise. But yes. Hashtag TSSMLS. Uh, you can tag us or Joe or both if or you both. want to. At Joe and Cleach, right? There we go. Uh, and then uh, the, I think roughly the plan right now is what that we'll continue to have Joe on throughout the playoffs. Maybe yeah. Joe will host a show or two uh, to you know to see if he enjoys it, to see if he still wants to do it. Hopefully he will. <laughs> and then launching maybe towards the end of this year or like towards the uh, like start of MLS next season, yeah. Joe will be with uh, a newly named show, yeah. likely with a co-host. Uh, is the is the plan, and, yep. and we'll get it going. And it'll be called How Joe Can You Go. Oh my god! Yeah. All right, <laughs> on the down lowery. Please, somebody do better than me. Mad genius. <laughs> do, you see, do you see what I have to deal with, Joe? Do you see what I have to deal with? <laughs> All right, I'll stop myself. This and is I'll tough. Mo- this is tough. <laughs> I'll stop myself and I'll move us on to talk about the first round of Major League Soccer playoffs. But before you do that, really? my last thing I wanted to say was just that on a personal note, I'm really excited because we have loved Joe's writing. We've loved having Joe on the show. Yeah. Uh, we think he will do a very great job with a podcast because he's done a great job with everything else he's done so far. So it stands to reason that the streak will continue. Uh, and I'm genuinely delighted to have him uh, as part of our, our TSS Friendship Network or whatever we're going to call <laughs> Is it. Is that what you're going to call <laughs> it? Yes. The TSS Friendship Network. No. Do we See, get matching bracelets? <laughs> Yes. Yes, let's do it. That would be great. Let's do it. And Dakota rings while we're at it. But no, seriously, thank you for that, Taylor. I'm, I'm super excited and thankful for you guys hopping into this with me and, and giving me some guidance along the way. So thank you both. Uh, Daryl's pleasure. I'm okay with it. Uh, yes, and with that note, Daryl, sorry, started. now you can get it started. All right, so actually before we go through the six um, first-round playoff games, do you agree, Joe, with the popular sentiment that single elimination is best? I do. Even just from an entertainment perspective, that's the top thing on my notes from from these six games. I have it in all caps is the single elimination format is great for entertainment. Um, It it completely eliminated – well, it mostly eliminated those kind of cagey, low-scoring games and and forced teams to go for it, which really did give us some wild end-to-end action. So, yeah, I I was a big fan of it, and I I think the league will stick with it going forward. And we got off to a quiet start with Atlanta and New England, right? But then everything kind of exploded after that. But let's start with Atlanta versus New England Revolution. It finished 1-0. The goal from Escobar, the setup from Ezekiel Barco, Mm -hmm. not on the field for the goal, Pity Martinez. He was not. Joe, how surprising was that for you? Honestly, it wasn't all that surprising. I think some of the media comments that Frank DeBoer had made in the, in the build-up to that week was, you know, he was just kind of going to wait and see. There's a chance that he and Barco, that Pity and Barco could have played together. But for from watching Atlanta this season, that did seem pretty unlikely. Um, and, and from watching them actually play this game, I really don't think they missed Pity Martinez that much. Barco did a good job of connecting the midfield into the attack and kind of acting as a, as a fourth central midfielder at times, but also playing off of Martinez at other times, of Joseph Martinez, rather. Um, yeah. So I don't think, 
I frankly don't even think this team really misses Pitti when he's not in the lineup, which is absurd thinking back to you know the offseason and, and what it meant to the league and to Atlanta United to get him here you know, from South America. I think I never would have expected to be saying these words, but when you look at this game and you look at the season Atlanta United have had, and you know, the people who have watched the team religiously may want to correct me on this, but I really don't think there's a massive downtick in performance versus when he's on the field compared to when he isn't. So one thing that, like, like was minorly surprising. I told this to Daryl before we started recording that like I had this sneaking feeling that Bruce Arena having the experience he does, knowing the playoffs the way he does, single elimination maybe changes this a little bit, but I, I did kind of think there's a chance that New England were going to cause more problems, even potentially maybe upset Atlanta. Obviously that doesn't end being the ca- end up being the case. Do you feel like there was like like was this Bruce Arena not being like tactical enough or not trying different things? Was this New England not being strong enough? Was this Atlanta getting their tactics right, or was this Atlanta just being a stronger team from top to bottom? I, in a weird way, I think it's all of those things, right? I, I was a little bit disappointed as well with kind of the lack of, uh, I don't know, the lack of adjustments that we mm-hmm. saw from Bruce Arena, given his experience in the league. Like you're saying there, Taylor, we saw you know Frank DeBoer roll out with the same shape he's used for most of the season. He overloaded central midfield compared to, to what the Revolution had in the middle of their defense. They only had two central midfielders to deal with, three or four, from Atlanta United. And over and over again, we saw Atlanta play through midfield, either to Jeff Lorenowitz or Darlington Nagby, uh, Barco, and then Heinemann a little bit as well. We saw them use those overloads in central midfield to advance the ball. And I was disappointed that we didn't see a lot of adjustments from Marina. At the same time, though... I think that actually was part of his plan to maybe give up a little bit in midfield to be able to push his four attackers forward. Playing out of that 4-4-2, most of the time it even looked like a 4-2-4. You know, we had Bo and Bunbury up top and then Christian Pena and Carlos Hill on the wings. And those guys would just run at, at Lena's back line. And especially without Miles Robinson in the middle of Atlanta's defense, I can understand from Arena, you know, taking the chance in midfield to give his team a better shot to expose Atlanta's back three in transition. But Michael Parkhurst turned back the clock and did a great Mm -hmm. job of patrolling space in midfield. Obviously, not in midfield, excuse me, in defense before he went down very, very late in the game with that shoulder injury. But I I was a little bit disappointed with the refs' performance as well. I thought they had a real shot, just like you did, Taylor, to actually win this game and cause some havoc at the bottom of that Eastern Conference playoff bracket. And how how was Darlington Nagby's performance? Was it, oh, please, we need him on the U.S. men's national team? Or was it, we're okay without him? I I thought Nagby was really, really good in this game. Uh, He he wasn't always under a ton of pressure, but when he was, he did Darlington Nagby things as the kind of ultimate (laughs) press-resistant midfielder. Um, What does that mean? For for people who don't understand what press-resistant means, what, what does that look like? Yeah, so when Nagby receives the ball, whether that's with a defender immediately on his back, under like pressuring him tightly or whether that means someone's running at him Nagby is really really good at receiving the ball and using some sort of move body feint you know skill whatever it is to get by the the approaching defender and advance the ball forward so against a team that's sitting a little bit deeper it can be a real advantageous asset to have a player that can stride forward into space and, and overcome pressure or against a high press which the revs didn't do a ton of in this game but if Atlanta does face a team that presses a little bit higher having Nagby be able to receive the ball, you know, beat a man and then dribble forward is huge to get the ball forward to the attackers. So Nagby, every time I watch him, he is frustrating at times. He wasn't too much in this New England game, but with his passing selection, I think that's kind of the, the biggest negative on him. But he's he's been really, really good for Atlanta this season, and I thought he was excellent on Saturday as well. Well, one thing he's been selecting to pass on is U.S. men's national team oh. duty. Do any of us know the real reason? 
We don't. I do, do not. I haven't heard yeah. anything. No, I mean, I mean, there was there were family reasons initially. I think, and maybe well, personal th- reasons. I think it was. And it was personal reasons. Like the the one from a while ago was family reasons. It was personal reasons this time around. Uh, it seems like maybe he just doesn't really. Maybe, maybe he's just got an anti Burhalter f- feeling about him. He'll never play for a Burhalter <laughs> team. It's why he never played for Columbus, Daryl. <laughs> I, it's I obviously want, it. Just with the recent U.S. national team trouble, I want the answer. I want to know the reason that Nagby is is not involved. Mm-hmm. I guess we're not going to get it today, though. We probably are not. Uh, what we are going to get, hopefully, is Joe's thoughts on injuries. Uh, we we should know we're going to do sort of a review of the first round of games and then a kind of a look ahead to the games that are upcoming. But since Joe has already mentioned some of the injuries, Miles Robinson uh, missing this game, Michael Parker is separating the shoulder. Uh, Joe, like, is the expectation that we'll see sort of like the same backline that we saw near the end of uh, Lorenowitz, LGP, and Florentine Pogba? And if so, how does that sort of hold up against Philadelphia? Do you think? I think we will absolutely see Lorenowitz drop back to center back. And whether that means we're going to see a back three from Atlanta like they used in this game or if they'll shift to more of a standard back four, I I don't know what will be best to limit sort of Lorenowitz's lack of mobility. Um, So we'll see what Frank DeBoer decides to do on that. But I think, you know, obviously missing Michael Parkhurst and and Miles Robinson is is a huge advantage uh, for Philadelphia in this Eastern Conference semifinal. They have... A plethora. We'll talk about this a little bit later because uh, I'm going to make us talk about it. But we'll, we'll, <laughs> Philadelphia Union have a lot of attacking options that that can do a lot of great things in the in the attack, especially now against center backs that maybe aren't as mobile uh, as Atlanta is used to playing with. So I think it's a real advantage to the Philadelphia Union and their their attackers, whether that's in a 4-4-2 diamond or a 4-2-3-1, are going to be able to take advantage of some of those gaps uh, that maybe Atlanta wouldn't have had if Parker or Miles Robinson was in the lineup. Are you guys ready to move on to uh, the next game? Seattle 4, Dallas 3. Uh, crazy, crazy game that Seattle won in extra time with a Jordan Morris header. Um, here's the first thing, Joe. I know uh, you and I have spoken a couple of times and you've talked a lot about the Seattle left side overload, right? Like Jordan Morris and then Smith going outside of him and Ladero coming over as well. Um, I sort of casually watched this game. I was actually putting an Ikea chair together at the same time as watching this game. Um, <laughs> but I did notice Reggie Cannon, not at right back, but on the right wing, and Bressan playing right back. Bressan, who I believe is a centre-back, or at least is built like one. Um, was this uh, Luchi Gonzalez just attempting to just shore up that right side against that famous Seattle left side overload? And how did That's it work? What- that's my best guess. Uh, that's what I have in my notes. And I talked with Armand Kafai, who writes, uh, he's on the FC Dallas beat for Pro Soccer USA. And that was his, his opinion as well. We've never seen Reggie Cannon play on the wing uh, before. At least I certainly haven't. I don't think he's done that before either at UCLA or uh, with FC Dallas at any level. But him sliding out Luchi Gonzalez, using him as a right winger, and then occasionally on the left side as well. I really do think that was to help Dallas defend against Seattle's wide overloads. Um, and I think, it, I think it works fairly well. Seattle is so good at it. They, I don't think they went to it quite enough in this game, but they're good enough at it that it's it's almost impossible to stop regardless of personnel. But having another defender on that wing who's used to defending in wide areas and is used to tracking runners and, and communicating with other players on that side was really huge. And I really liked the move from Luchi Gonzalez. I think it showed willingness to be flexible. 
But it also it still kept Reggie Cannon in a position to succeed because he is going forward. I mean, we've seen him with the U.S. national team play almost more of a wing role in some matches just because of how Berhalter has structured the possession shape that he's used. So seeing Reggie Cannon be able to help a little bit defensively and still get forward into the attack was a was a really fun adjustment from Gonzalez. And I think it worked fairly well in this game. So from a narrative standpoint, I'm curious if you have thoughts on, like in the first 15 minutes or so, it did seem, and the commentary commentators seem to agree, that uh, like Seattle were sort of struggling to deal with some of the wrinkles that Dallas had thrown at them. Then Seattle go up 2-0. It seems like, oh, they have definitely figured this out. All is right. And then it's 2-2. Two two. Uh, do you have uh, like ideas as to why Seattle were able to go up, like how they were able to find a way through to get that 2-0 lead? And then what do you think went wrong for Seattle or right for Dallas? At the beginning of the game, I thought it was fairly even. Uh, I think both teams – actually, that's my opinion on most of this match from start to finish, mm-hmm. even in extra time. There were definitely stretches where one team was better than another. The Dallas definitely came out of the second half as the stronger team. Uh, they they kind of made Seattle look like they were shell-shocked a little bit. But, but starting at the beginning of the match, Seattle came out fairly well, just like Dallas did, but, but it was really there. Uh, attacking talent that made a huge difference at the beginning of the game. Uh, Nico Lodero had that goal from well outside the box uh, that you know beat Jesse Gonzalez in the, in the low corner. And then Jordan Morris came through and finished with his left foot in, in transition a little bit off of some direct play. Uh, and so both of those sequences kind of exposed some some gaps in Dallas's defense, which has been a theme for them when I've watched them this season. I don't think they always do the best job of, of containing opposing attacks. But, you know, Dallas rebounded fairly well, I think. They they came back and they got one right before halftime with Reggie Cannon scoring uh, Dallas's first goal. And then they came out of the second half, like I mentioned before, really, really well. They started they started fast. They had Seattle pinned back for, most, for a good long stretch at the beginning of that half. So uh, Dallas really did do an excellent job of fighting back and controlling that. And then it, it kind of just turned into a dogfight at the end of the game once Seattle went up 3-2. to two. Dallas got one back off of a corner. Uh, late in the match, I believe, and then you know, extra time was another dogfight. So really, back and forth, and that's what made this game so fun. Is yeah, there were absolutely sequences where you know one team was better than the other and really imposing their their strategic ideas on the other team, but it was truly back and forth and, and pretty even, in my opinion, throughout the whole game. Before anyone sends an email or tweets, um, it was Rui Diaz, not Ladero, scored that scored that opening goal. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's going to be part of hosting the show is you'll definitely get tweets and emails if you accidentally <laughs> get the wrong player. Yes, or if you <laughs> slightly mispronounce a name or say the wrong color. when you're when you, If you say green instead of rave green, you're going to hear about it. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing, Joe. It's fun. <laughs> Can we talk Jordan Morris hat trick? Two with his left foot? Yeah, let's do it. I think Morris was, was really good in this game in general. I yeah. think it was nice for, to see him back in Seattle after kind of a disappointing midweek game with the national team. Yeah. Disappointing is a word. Disappointing <laughs> is a word. Do you, do you have any theories on this whole left-footed Jordan Morris renaissance? Because Tyler, Tyler asked him like directly after the Cuba game, right? Have you been working on your left foot? And he keeps kind of saying no. It's just, I don't know what people are talking about. This is just natural. But there's such an obvious difference between the guy that mm-hmm. literally injured himself trying to use his right foot when he shouldn't have yep. in the CONCACAF Champions League and the guy who scores two playoff goals with his left foot. Yeah, I almost don't believe Jordan Morris when he when he responded on that one, Taylor. It's, it's it's impossible for me to believe, unless somehow he supernaturally improved his left foot uh, just by kind of <laughs> standing around. Like I don't see how someone can go from from 
using the right foot so exclusively to now being able to score actual goals in big games with his left. So it's encouraging from a national team perspective to see him come out and actually be a little bit more of a well-rounded player. We can see him play on both sides of, of you know midfield now, whether it's on the left side or the right side, or even use some of his versatility in a central position as a single striker underneath another striker. So improving his left has definitely added some positional versatility, which is only going to help him uh, with the national team going forward. What's he's your a- favorite position for him? Sorry, Tyler. I was he- going to say he's a Stanford guy. So I assume he's intelligent, but I do like the idea of him just being like, wait, there's two of them down there? Oh, I used the left one this time. Okay. Uh, yeah, Daryl. He's a Stanford guy with a sports scholarship. There we go. There saying. we go. Good point. Um, what, what's your preferred <laughs> position for him, Joe? Because he seems to mostly play sort of left wing for Seattle, right wing uh, for the national team. He's had spells where he's been a striker and he's played underneath a striker. Like, what do you, Where do you think he's most effective? I think for Seattle, it works really well to have him on that left wing because of the overloads that we talked about with Brad Smith getting forward from left back and and having Smith be responsible for putting in those crosses with his strong left foot. Um, But with the national team, especially with how Berhalter wants his team to play to use those wingers to get in behind in between the the center back and fullback on, on that side. I think having Morris on the right of the United States attack is pretty much perfect. It allows them to stretch the opposition in transition and get in behind them in possession as well. So that's that's my preferred spot for him with the United States. That makes sense. It's a different setup with the with the two different teams. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. If you're looking for the correct setup with uh, <laughs> life insurance, see that? That was a segue. Mm-hmm. Um, see how it's done, Joe? See how you do that? That's the segue. Then <laughs> you bring great, attention guys. to Thank it you. and it's perfect. <laughs> um, Policy Genius. Today's show is sponsored by Policy Genius. Mm-hmm. I love Policy Genius ads because they send us updated copy every month. And it's actually updated. It's actually updated. This month, they want you to know that Halloween is on the way. It's time for rubber spiders, fake cobwebs, and jack-o'-lanterns. Um, but if you've got a family uh, and you might be dealing with something a little scarier right now, shopping for life insurance. I also appreciate that, that they try to make it like f- funny and humorous because it is the case that Anytime you're looking for life or for insurance, life insurance especially, it is a sort of daunting task that I I don't know if you do this, Daryl, because you tend to be better about like actually completing objectives on time, whereas I'm a little (laughs) bit more like, ah, that's maybe I'll just watch The Office for the 14th time. I don't know if I need to really worry about insurance. Yeah, yeah, like the nuances this time around. Uh, The water was green in the background. Who knew? But Policy Genius makes it a less intimidating thing because basically in minutes you can get quotes uh, from top insurance to find your best price. They're sort of doing all the work for you. So you then can watch The Office while they do the work. You can pause it, select your (laughs) quote, figure out how you want to uh, uh, proceed, and then get back to your episode. It's all very streamlined, Daryl. It's not just life insurance. They can also help you find home insurance, auto insurance, and disability insurance. The easy way to shop online. Um, this October, take the scariness out of buying life insurance with Policy Genius. Where would people go to do that, Taylor? They would go to policygenius.com to get quotes and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now because Policy Genius is the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Uh, the easy way to do MLS playoff reviews is to have a person who knows all about the MLS playoffs, has watched them several times, and is a tactical genius. Break them down. That's why we have Joe Lowry here. Joe, <laughs> we're going to move on, I believe, to RSL 2, the Portland Timbers 1. No, not chronologically. It was Toronto DC next. Oh, you want to do that one next? Yeah. All right. Let's do that. Fine. It finished Toronto 5, DC United 1. And my big question, Joe, is what happened to DC in extra time? Oh, that's a great question. I've, I've talked about this with a couple different people already. I, I think DC really never were in this game uh yeah they got the header right before you know the final whistle ended on re- on regular the regular 90 minutes but yeah. they headed into extra time and they still looked like they really weren't in it uh, toronto 
came out well at the beginning of extra time and sort of just opened the floodgates. They combined well in the attacking half and, and took advantage of some pretty lackadaisical tired defending from DC. You and, think that's what just, it was? Was it tiredness? I think that definitely was part of it, right? I think you see some of these guys and just the way they were moving on a couple of those goals. I mean, part of it also could be a little bit of like them being demoralized after conceding one or maybe two in extra time already, maybe just realizing that their season was over. But there was just some really poor efforts out there. And that's it's no indictment on the players necessarily. It's a difficult situation playing away and kind of already having a lot of momentum against you. But there were a couple of sequences where players just weren't tracking runners like a professional player should. Um, wasn't closing down space to, to cut off shooting angles, things like that. So Toronto has enough skill that they're going to expose you when that happens. They have the players, even without Josie Altidore, up top. They still have the attacking and midfield talent to come at you and to pass around you and, and make you show some defensive effort and some defensive intangibles. And I think that's really what DC lost at the start of extra time. So I was thinking Bill Hamid shouldn't have been tired because he had a nice lie down for the first Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. Uh, Joe, DC was like the one team in your uh, playoff preview for the Athletic where you talked about like the tactical trends and tactical approaches of each team. You didn't really have any positives for DC heading into the playoffs. You got a little bit of stick for that. Do you feel justified in your approach given the way this game went? <laughs> I mean a little bit, right? It'd be hard not to. Uh, some A little bit of complaining about a lack of a positive take on DC, but... The thing with them was their defense was supposed to be what you know allowed them to actually mm-hmm. be a com- like competitive team in the playoffs. Their offense had been poor, right? I think I don't think that's news at this point. Even with Wayne Rooney, they'd struggled a lot of this season to get goals. Um, but their defense wasn't able to keep it together. Bill Hamid was huge. He was a huge factor coming into this game, and he made a mistake on the first goal. Or I mean, maybe that's a little harsh. I, he didn't deal with the shot in it quite as well as he could have in pairing it the side that allowed i believe it was marky delgado now i'm a little yeah marky delgado um to to finish <laughs> sorry about uh, throwing you off your game i'm sorry no that's fine that's quite all right um uh, but bill hamid couldn't couldn't quite you know step up in that moment and then the rest of the defense you know let in five goals over the course of the game so i i guess yeah i do feel a little vindicated uh, more honestly concerned for dc united for next season now without mm-hmm. wayne rooney it seems like uh, that ben olsen is likely to be brought back again and i just i don't see which acosta wasn't really a factor later on in the season he's probably not going to be back with the team next season paul Ariola is probably and and uh, rodriguez as well or maybe their two best attacking pieces and, and that's just good not good enough to compete in this league at this point so uh dc fans i i'm concerned for you guys and and hopefully we do see sort of an uptick in performance next season all right, I think DC fans will be happy if we move on to the next game. I mean, I, I'm, Joe has a tendency to anticipate my questions and answer them before. And my next question was literally going to be like, it does feel that like for DC making the playoffs, like Wayne Rooney has already left. Pablo Mar tweeted that today that, today, yeah. that he's flown back to England this morning. Uh, 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 Lucio Acosta, Luciano Acosta did not start this game. It does feel like things are bad. And then Joe, like, Joe beat me right to it. So instead of just sitting here being like, yeah, I don't really know how it's going to get better. I mean, it's going to be a new look DC yeah. next year, mm-hmm. right? We hope. It can't just be that team, but without Rooney and without Acosta. Then, I mean, it could. Because then you're not even getting an away playoff game. <laughs> this is true. You would somehow get relegated. There'd be no pro rel, but DC will still get relegated to the USL Championship. <laughs> let's hope that doesn't happen. Instead, let's move on to the game I already tried to move on to. Maybe I just, as a DC fan, wanted to skip over the <laughs> annihilation that was Toronto DC. Instead, let's talk RSL. Uh, Portland, Diego Valeri does not start this game, does end up coming in when the Timbers need to get their offense going. Joe, can you give our listeners uh, a quick summary of sort of what has happened 
happened with Diego Valeri over the last couple of months. Uh, it's surprising not to see him start, I guess, but it also sort of isn't at the same time. Yeah, the situation with Diego Valeri in Portland is a, definitely a sticky one. Uh, it seems that there have been some contract disputes and negotiations undergoing as the season has progressed, and that has at least from an outsider's perspective, seems like it's it's seeped into the on-field action a little bit as well. So in this game, we don't see Diego Valeri start. At this point, he might never play another game for the Portland Timbers. Oof. So we saw Sebastian Blanco start, uh, which as he normally does, but not alongside Valeri. Instead, Blanco was kind of the primary creative attacker for for the Timbers. And uh, I think missing Valeri was a was was a big factor. It wasn't the only factor that that went into Portland losing this game, but it definitely played a part into why RSL were able to to sort of stifle the Timbers' attack so easily and create some consistent attacking chances of their own. Was the, was there a case to be made that Valeri was out of form? I haven't seen enough of Portland over the last couple of months to be able to say like he deserved to start or like he wasn't contributing and it actually wasn't a big deal that he didn't start. So, like, does his on-pitch performance, like, should that have demanded a starting place or not? I, I think it should have. I, I don't think fitness was a huge problem. Maybe it was a, a slight concern from uh, Gio Savarisi. But, I mean, it's Diego Valeri. Like, this is this is the Portland Timbers star. It's the face of their franchise. And, and still a very, very, very good player as well. Yeah, he's a little bit older. A lot of his production came off of set pieces this season. But, I mean, he is the guy who makes this attack tick. And so bringing him off the bench is definitely a questionable decision from Savarese. And I think it deserves uh, some discussion from the Portland media. And I think they, they tried to get some answers out of him at the game, but I'm not sure they, they really were able to pin him down as to what the actual tactical logic behind that decision was. Speaking of uh, questions being asked of Portland, with this win for RSL, is this an example of uh, RSL kind of figuring a way through and using their sort of varied attacking approach to like cause Portland problems, or is it a little bit of that and a lot bit Portland needing to buy some center backs? <laughs> uh, I, I think it was, oof, yeah, probably a little both, right? It's hard to not be a little bit of both in this situation. RSL, I thought, did a really good job of exploiting some of the baffling weaknesses in, in the Portland's defensive structure. You know, they came out at the start of the first half and kind of just played a flat line across midfield with just a clump of players. Uh, and that gave RSL tons of space. <laughs> Anytime the word clump is yeah. in the tactical description, you know it's not good. I right? don't think that was an intentional <laughs> thing of like, all right, guys, we're going with the clump. <laughs> I hope not. I mean, I, I can't imagine Sabres trying to pass that by in the team talk before the game. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of <laughs> what the Galaxy did. It's a clump and Zlatan at times. That works. <laughs> You're right. Maybe they're inspired by the rest of the Western Conference. <laughs> um, but yeah, RSL took advantage of some of that space. They built up. Kyle Buckerman had tons of time to play long balls onto Corey Baird or, or whoever else in the attacking midfield that, that he could spot. And then they also had plenty of space on the wings as well. So the Timbers' defensive shape wasn't good to begin with. And then, as you mentioned, those center backs struggled with uh, some pretty obvious marking assignments. Yeah. I mean, Krylak had just, you know, absolutely demolished them. Neither one really even looked like they moved on that, whether that's Tuiloma or Maliaba. Ma, mm, that's a pronunciation issue. I'm going to have to work that. Maliaba <laughs> um, as well at center back. He just dunked on both of those guys at the same time somehow. And so. Yeah, how did he do it, that? Because he managed to sort of get between them and maybe Jedi mind trick them both into thinking he was offside. <laughs> Uh, and then they also gave, like you said, they gave loads of space on the wing. Corey Baird had all day to yep. to cross that ball. Like nothing, nothing was set up correctly. And that's what's so confusing to me is this is a knockout playoff game. This is single elimination away from home with your season on the line. And 
Dino Esprilla doesn't close down Baird exactly like you mentioned there, Daryl. And then the two center backs just let Krylak walk down. And it's it's baffling. It really is. And so in a way, it was sort of justice that RSL were able to withstand uh, the attack of the, the Timbers attack in the second half once Valeri came on. And then, you know, credit to Portland. They did change up their defensive structure a little bit to more of a structured 4-4-2 instead of that clump uh, that we saw at the beginning. <laughs> but uh, was, the structured clump. The structure clump is, is definitely not what we're looking for from the Timbers in the future. So RSL, credit to them. I think absolutely they deserve uh, props for what they were able to do in this game. And, you know, from what we, what we saw on Saturday, they deserve to advance to play Seattle instead of the Timbers. There's no doubt about it in my mind. I love any winning goal like Savarino's that involves um, a leave. Is it Ruznak maybe with the leave? The ball came across yeah. and he just sort of faked going for it but didn't go for it. I feel like that's one of the... Um, Least technical, but most enjoyable moves in the soccer. The intentional, successful, and appropriately timed dummy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess dummies are more. Yeah. More exciting word for it. Yeah. Yeah. That sequence was really, really nice. They, you know, we saw Freddy Juarez bring off, you know, Joao Plata and Sam Johnson off the bench, and there's another team with some decent attacking talent that they can bring off late in games. And Plata played the ball through, and Rusnak dummied it over to Savarino on the far right side, and and he beat the keeper. It was it was a really nice sequence to end the game in sort of an emphatic fashion for RSL, who I think were the better team overall over the course of the match. So RSL uh, advance, so too do the Philadelphia Union, uh, handing the Red Bulls a 4-3 to loss, a victory for Philadelphia. Uh, Joe, I have always been under the assumption that Luis Robles and Andre Blake are two of the best goalkeepers, or near the top of the goalkeeper list when it comes to Major League Soccer. This game uh, did not help me believe that fully. <laughs> Yeah, no, I kind of am in the same spot as you at this point, Taylor. I think especially early on from Andre, like some really unfortunate uh, mistakes that allowed the Red Bulls to jump out early, which is I think in our conversation that you and I had last week is something that I, I talked about that could potentially kill the Union if the Red Bulls were able to score and then kind of sit in their block and, and attack from there just sort of at their leisure that was going to be tough for the Union to get back on top. And, and they used some set pieces of their own, credit to them, or maybe a lack of credit to the Red Bulls' defensive marking scheme in the box. Uh, maybe both, I don't know. But the Union were able to climb back into this game. And, and this one, like Seattle FC Dallas, was another extra time kind of back and Well, it wasn't back and forth. The, the Union just kind of came back as the game went on. It was a really thrilling match from start to finish. Did Marco Fabian mean that goal, or was it a cross? Oh, I don't think he meant it at all. I think it was 100% a cross that was fortunate enough to be deflected into the back of the net. I'm trying to remember uh, Benny Failhaber on uh, MLS Live. I, I think he called it like a, a schloss or a, a schloss <laughs> or something like that. It, it was a great term for like a cross shot and it kind of covers both bases. It takes a, the deflection adds another wrinkle to it as well as to whether or not he was crossing and then it takes a deflection and goes in or shooting and then it takes a deflection and goes in. I don't. I am of the school that he probably did not necessarily mean to, but will happily claim credit for it uh, today. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. We've also we've talked a lot about players who were missing, right? Like Valeri was missing from the start. Martinez was missing from the start for Atlanta. Mikey Murillo was not even on the bench. Like for me, he's one of the best right backs in Major League Soccer. Do we know what the story is there? I believe he picked up a knock. I'm, uh, I can't oh, say okay. for certain one way or the other, but I think he may have had a slight injury in the regular season finale, maybe on decision day, or was that Kyle Duncan? Uh, I don't I don't remember. Yeah, Mario came off the bench for Duncan in that Montreal match, so I'm not sure what happened to Mario. But you're right, he's, I think, one of the better right-backs at full form 
that Major League Soccer has to offer. I've seen some rumblings on Twitter that there was like a Mario Armas fallout of mm. some sort, and I just oh, wondered if anybody knew be. anything about that. Well, given that there are already reports that Chris Armas has been let go, I'm going to say Mario mm. won that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, then my question. Name the new head coach. Then definitely, definitely. So <laughs> uh, my question for you then, Joe, uh, relating to substitutions, Ilsinio comes on, uh, Fafa Pico comes on. Uh, I think two goals happen with those gentlemen on the field. Fafa Pico scoring one of them, obviously. Uh, do you expect either of them to start or get more? minutes uh, in the next round or do you think they will continue to get a feature from the bench I think for the union having for Jim Curtin having those three guys that he's able to pick from off the bench based on the game state and the game situation is pretty much just how he wants it so I, I wouldn't be shocked I wouldn't be shocked at all if Fafa Pico started the next game probably not Fabian or Il Senio. Mm-hmm. just uh, from a positional perspective I think Curtin likes to keep a little bit more structure and defensive ability in midfield especially coming up against Atlanta in this next round um, so while Pico could start I wouldn't be shocked at all to see all three of those guys ready to sub on because you're exactly right Taylor those you know Pico, Il Senio, and Fabian Having them off the bench is pretty much unfair. They they changed the game. Elsino dribbling from that right wing. Uh, he made Kamar Lawrence really have to work for it. You know, Kamar Lawrence, one of the best left backs in the league, one of the fastest and strongest as well from a physical standpoint. You know, Elsino had him a little bit on a string. Uh, Lawrence did fine, but that just gives you an idea of what Elsino can do with the ball. And then Pico, he can stretch the opposing back line. He's also fine on the ball and, and can put in some crosses with his right foot as well. And then Marco Fabian came and he had that shot or, or whatever we're going <laughs> to give Benny Fellhauer credit for calling it. He had that game-making play and then also some, some really nice nutmegs in midfield. I think he had back-to-back, back-to-back nutmegs. Uh, a little bit later or earlier at this point, all the games run together. But uh, those three guys off the bench is is a huge weapon for the union and I think we're going to see Curtin go back to it in the next game so I've got a final Philly question it's kind of US men's national team related uh, the, guy, the guys coming off the bench one of them one of the guys they replaced was young Brandon Aronson mm-hmm. how do you think he did in his first playoff game and will he keep his starting spot like can I tune into the next Philly game and watch the future of the US men's national team or will Aronson end up on the bench I thought Aronson played well. Uh, okay. he, I think he did a good job moving into different spaces into the attack. He played sort of as a pseudo number 10. The Union really don't ever use a traditional number 10 regardless of what possession shape they're using. All those guys are moving around into different vertical channels in the attack. So it's pretty flexible. But I think Aronson has a really good idea of where the space is and, and timing of when to make runs into that space. And we've seen that before. And I think that was another thing that popped up in this game. As well, defensively, he's not the biggest or strongest guy, but he's willing. And so yeah. if you can, if you can get some of those bone, physical right? attributes, he is. He's a little bit slight. Uh, I want to cook him he's a not ever, <laughs> I think you should, Daryl. I think you really appreciate What's that. What's happening over here? <laughs> My mom's been in town. So okay, there we go. Yeah, I'm picking up some language. That'll do it. That'll I think you can make that happen. I really do. <laughs> um, so Aronson, defensively, he's, he's a willing body, and he does put in a lot of work defensively to cut off passing angles and, and track the ball. So. I think he'll start again against Atlanta. He started away there earlier this season, so he's already gotten one start in the bends underneath his belt. Um, and I, I would be surprised if Curtin went with Fabian or Jaime Montero in that spot over him uh, later this week. All right. Taylor, do you want to do the next ad or do you want to do the final playoff game? Let's do the final game, then we'll get to the ad, then we'll get to the next round. Minnesota. Minnesota hosted a playoff game. They did, and And they they were the only home team to lose. (laughs) Uh, They fall 2-1 to to the LA Galaxy. I want to start with the Galaxy, Joe. I think this will round out into a question. We'll see how it goes. But another (laughs) point you made in your preview. I'm excited to see if you get that. (laughs) We'll see what happens. Uh, Another (laughs) point you made in your preview was about 
how Zlatan is both a strength and a vulnerability for the Galaxy because he is not inclined to do as much defensive work. That has probably been the case all season, but I was paying particular attention to that in this game because of that write-up from you. And it is definitely true that there are times when he'll chase a ball down. If he doesn't get it, it is a slow walk back towards like LA Galaxy shape. Do you think that was a major hindrance for the Galaxy in this game? Obviously, Minnesota don't score until the Galaxy are 2-0 ahead. But did you see some of the kind of signs that you thought you would with Zlatan not featuring so much defensively for the Galaxy? Absolutely. Uh, Minnesota United did a decent job of taking advantage of some of the space that Zlatan can leave with his lack of defensive effort. And we'd be talking about it more, obviously, if Minnesota United had won this game yeah. and if some of the so the attacking sequences that Minnesota generated had led directly to goals. But I mean, I, and just in my notes from this match, I have several sequences where Ibrahimovic didn't occupy the space you would expect a, a striker in a defensive block to occupy. And that allowed... Minnesota United to move the ball downfield much easier than they would have otherwise. It forced the Galaxies, the rest of the Galaxies' defensive block to cover more ground. They got stretched, and Minnesota was able to play a lot on that right side of their attack specifically and, and play low crosses into the box. If their final ball had been a little bit better, that was something that Adrian Heath talked about after the match. If if that last pass had been a little bit better or maybe the finishing had been a little bit sharper or, or the runs a little bit quicker, all those factors together, I think Ibrahimovic would likely be receiving a lot more criticism than he will. But against LAFC, although the Galaxy do seem to have LAFC's number, that's not typically the thing you can get away with. And so we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit about that in the preview section. But I think Ibrahimovic is still that positive and negative offensively. Uh, the Minnesota United center backs, Ike Opara and Michael Boxall, did a really good job of containing him for 70% of the game. And then they they lost it a little bit at the end, the last 20 minutes or so. And that hurt. But Ibrahimovic on the whole was pretty much neutralized as harsh because I don't think you can ever truly neutralize him. But Minnesota United did a good job of exploding his weaknesses and limiting his strengths for most of this match. Just not quite all of it. I, w- I was going to ask about that. But you, once again, you seem to have anticipated because... It seems like if if he's not going to do the defensive job, Zlatan makes up for it by being clinical and a consistent threat in front of goal. In this game, he was the opposite of clinical, uh, and it sounds like a knockout game. Oh, that that makes more sense. Uh, (laughs) That's at least part of it. Um, And but so, Joe, would you say a, a large part of that was Minnesota's? defensive work that threw him off or was this just sort of an off night for Zlatan I'm not used to seeing him have those but it did feel that way that he just looked a little bit less like precise less up for it less ruthless in front of goal the lion sleeps tonight (laughs) god get out of the room in the playoffs the the lion sleeps tonight Yeah, I'm just going to let Daryl answer that. Uh, no, I think I think Minnesota United are uniquely qualified to to frustrate Ibrahimovic, and so I'm not sure if it was a mental thing that he went in with, having a little bit of an off day leading into an off game, or if it was due to Boxel Opara at center back and then uh, Ozzy Alonso in defensive midfield. But you know, just to give some credit to Minnesota United where it's due, I think those three guys did a really good job of of frustrating him at times. Michael Boxall stepped to him a, a few times and, and beat him to the ball when Ibra was too slow coming back to, to get on the ball. Ikopara beat him to a couple of headers and got a body on him early for some some balls into the box. And Ozzy Alonso is just you know a pest. I think uh, pretty much anyone in the league would tell you that. No one no one wants to play against Ozzy Alonso, but you do want him on your team. So it's, it's a shame for Minnesota United, really, because 
they did a lot of things right in this game, including you know frustrating Ibra from from start to almost finish. But they <laughs> they were just missing a little bit that would have gotten them to to complete the home team's uh, you know dominance throughout this first weekend of MLS. Well, luckily it's not all about Zlatan, right? You've got Sebastian Nujet and Jonathan Dos Santos uh, with the two goals. Uh, Taylor, so I hadn't seen this, so Taylor showed me this in the office. He was especially excited for me to see that Dos Santos goal. It was real pretty. It was a real it pretty was. goal. It, it's, it was beautiful. Whenever you get that sort of like laces that almost maybe you hit with a little part of your ankle, so yeah. it has that like strange knuckleball effect that's still traveling a thousand miles an hour, it always looks especially good. And then, as I said on the weekend review, when you have the goalkeeper at full stretch and it still goes in, but it was so tight that even the announcers like maybe thought he missed it for just a second, yeah. it all combines to be a pretty, pretty goal. So I want to put it out there that um, Scalato and the Galaxy chose the correct Dos Santos brother when they had to sacrifice one at the beginning yeah. of the season. I think that's safe they to say. They made the right choice. It's also safe to say that they made the right choice in terms of who they started when it came to their attack. Uh, Joe, I'm going to assume you would say the same is not true for Adrian Heath and who he chose to start for Minnesota. I would say that. You're absolutely right. I think choosing to start Rodriguez over Mason Toy and uh, Kevin Molino over Darwin Quintero, definitely some questions should be should be asked about that. I, I can understand the Rodriguez one a little bit in theory. Just because maybe Minnesota United came into this game knowing that they were going to have a, a little bit more possession than they normally do, knowing that they weren't going to have to transition as much because that's also something that the Galaxy like to do. Neither neither one of these teams is in love with having the ball at their feet. So maybe you put Rodriguez in to be a little bit of a bigger body in the attack. Uh, I don't know exactly if that's what Adrian Heath's reasoning was on that one. But then Darwin Quintero is the real question mark. We saw him also not start in the U.S. Open Cup final. Uh, against Atlanta United, which they also lost. And so you you have to ask these questions. I don't know what Adrian Heath's reasoning was, and, and he probably wouldn't tell me if I asked him. But Is it that these, he, thinks, these... he thinks Molino is the greatest player in the whole world? Probably. I think that must be it. That's the only thing I can think of, Daryl. He, he keeps signing him, right? <laughs> I mean, and, and Molino's not even a bad player. Like, he's, he's virtually can play across the attack. But he's not Darwin Quintero. He's not capable of, of pulling out the same sequences. I mean, we saw Quintero, I believe he grabbed the assist on uh, Gregus' goal that, that brought Minnesota back within one with a, with a cross that he pulled back low across the top of the box. We can see the type of impact that players like Darwin Quintero, and this is sort of similar to the Valeri situation as well. We see these guys come off the bench and make an impact, and without understanding what's going on behind the scenes, it's hard to truly judge what what the decision-making process is and the result of that. But from what we can see on the field, it's impossible for me not to say that Darwin Quintero wouldn't have, have been a really big you know, player for Minnesota United if he'd started in this game, and maybe the result would have been different. So uh, L.A. advanced to meet L.A. Joe, I don't know if you knew that or not. Did you know that El Trafico was happening in the playoffs? It hasn't been discussed very much. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Thank you, Taylor, for enlightening me a little bit. I think that's, that's pretty great. Uh, yeah, it's my, it's my pleasure. Always happy to enlighten and always happy to talk about sponsors. We're going to get to the next round of the playoffs in a moment. But first, we want to talk about our sponsor, Manscaped. Manscaped is the number one men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Joe, do you know what on earth they could be referring to? I have no idea. Why don't you tell me a little bit more? <laughs> you, Joe, you know, I'm going to run with it anyway. Uh, the, the way we uh, agreed... Good deflection, Joe. Good we, deflection. We gave Joe the opportunity to get a show as he had to use the Manscaped products. He, <laughs> he is now completely hairless, and he says it's wonderful. Uh, but right. <laughs> um, if you, like Joe, are not as familiar with Manscaped, uh, they are the number one company in men's below-the-belt grooming. Uh, they offer they technology... They redesigned the electric trimmer. They did indeed. The Lawnmower 2.0 has proprietary skin-safe technology, so the trimmer will not nick or snag, which is a good thing you 
don't want a trimmer doing that, you especially don't want a below-the-belt trimmer doing that. No, I'm sure you can figure out what we're saying. So Manscaped makes accidents down there a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. And don't be, and also don't be thinking, I've already got a trimmer for my face. I can just use that down there. Don't be disgusting. Is anyone thinking that? They might be. They might be. You've got to make sure to get a separate was, lawnmower 2.0. Was Joe thinking that? I, he might have been. Okay. Yeah. I, I feel like that. Joe's jo, 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 jo a class individual. Uh, I'm assuming he was not. Yeah, and you don't want to have the situation... I, I think I've talked about this before. I had I had like one razor for my like one trimmer for my face, and I bought a second trimmer, and it was the identical one. That was a mistake. Don't do that. Don't do that. This one, it's very it's very obvious what it is because obviously it says the label on it, but it's a it's a smaller one that you can travel that can travel with you if you want to pack it. Yep. We can leave it at home and, and hide it in case you don't want anyone to know your shame. Uh, <laughs> your <but> shame. <laughs> you can you're do nice, that. You're nicely groomed. You're yes, exactly, shameful. exactly. But then uh, Manscaped also has lots of other products. They've got the crop refresher. They've got the crop. Pres- Observer, which is a deodorant that uh, limits chafing uh, and helps with moisturizing, which is always a very nice thing. And another very nice thing is that you can check out the products at Manscaped, uh, and you can do so at a discount. You can. You get 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code TSS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping uh, at manscaped.com when you use the code TSS. Always use the right tools for the job. I agree. Thank you very much to Manscaped for sponsoring today's episode. And thanks very much to Joe for continuing on with us as we throw him out of the bus. He might, he might have quit. Yeah, Joe, you still there? <laughs> I'm still here. All right, still Joe's still there. So we still need a name for Joe's show. We do. Hashtag TSSMLS. Let us know what you think the name of Joe's show should be. Tools for Jewels. Presented by Manscaped. There we go. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> it's going to be presented by Manscaped. Let's talk next round of the playoffs. Up first, Wednesday night, October 23rd at 7 p.m. We've got NYCFC Toronto. It's a, it's a battle of New York versus kind of New York, is what I'm calling <laughs> Tor- Toronto. Uh, and I'm, and I'm Fake gonna, New York in the movies. What's that? Fake New, Fake New, York, New York, York in the movies, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for any... Americans, they're probably thrilled that they don't have to go play at BMO Field because that did not work for DC United. It did not work for the U.S. national team. So instead, it's Toronto traveling to NYCFC. Uh, at is this y- one at Yankee Stadium? I don't know, Joe. Is this one at Yankee Stadium? That's I the first question. I believe this matches at City Field uh, where the Mets play. Okay. I think I think that's what it is. Yes, yeah. I just I just clicked mm-hmm. on it on the MLS app, and yes, City Field Stadium. What is City Field Stadium? What I Joe think just it's said. where the, the New York Mets play uh, their baseball games. Oh, so it's another baseball stadium. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yep. Yeah. Oh, no, they're not playing at a soccer stadium. Don't of be ridiculous. Don't, Don't be, be ridiculous, Daryl. I guess they want to keep the home field advantage by playing in a baseball stadium. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> uh, J- Joe, so baseball stadium aside, what are you expecting from this game? I think we're going to see what Toronto did a little bit to DC United. We're going to see NYCFC do that to Toronto. Um Toronto, in their first-round matchup, controlled the ball and, and moved it decently well. It, it wasn't beautiful, but it was fine. Uh, they, they moved it and controlled the tempo of the game. NYCFC were even more capable of doing that. Uh, and they can be even a little bit more direct than Toronto FC choose to be at times. So I think we're going to see NYCFC... I, first of all, I think we're going to see them win this match. Uh, they're the better team from top to bottom, and I think what Torrent has done with this squad is one of the more impressive coaching jobs that we've seen in MLS this season. Yeah, because he was but, kind of a punchline earlier in the season, right? So yeah, what, oh, what, yeah. what are they doing now that's so impressive? He's got them playing kind of like Manchester City light. I don't I don't want to throw that around there too much because it's, it's an absurd comparison. But he has them playing like you would expect to see a City football group team playing. Uh-huh. They, they're capable of building from the back. 
their center backs, especially Maxime Cheneau, are, are good on the ball. They're capable of breaking lines with passing. They have a versatile midfield, whether that's, uh, you know, Alex Ring, James Sands, if he's healthy, Keaton Parks, uh, you know, whoever is playing in that midfield, two or three. Maxime Morales, as well, has been one of the best playmakers in the league this season. They're really versatile in possession. They can move the ball throughout the, the opposing team's defensive shape, get it forward into the attack off of a little bit more direct play or runs with their attacking players or more patient buildup. And then they can press as well. And so those combinations allow them to be, you know, that's what got them to be the best team in the Eastern Conference this season. And I, I, I would be surprised, especially as you noted, getting to play on another baseball stadium with familiar kind of field size that that does play a little bit of a factor, regardless of, of what people say about that. Maybe the numbers don't show it having a true factor on, on NYCFC's performance, but it's got to have a psychological effect for the opposition, at least on some level. So I think New York City FC are going to come out and, and play well and have one of the, the better performances that we've seen in the playoffs so far. So you may have just answered it with that, with that uh, answer, but my next question is these two teams met twice this season. In Toronto, I believe it was a 4-0 win for Toronto. In New York, it was a 1-1 draw. It sounds like you're erring on the side of the 1-1 draw, more, being more so indicative of the way this is going to go, if not a win for NYCFC. Yeah, that performance at the beginning of the year where Toronto just kind of imposed their will on New York City FC was maybe the low point in NYCFC's season. Uh, that Toronto dominated them. There's no other way to describe it. NYCFC couldn't figure out how to defend, uh, which was a huge problem. But now, as the season's progressed, we've seen them become more a cohesive defensive team. So I absolutely do think that one-to-one matchup is, is much more indicative of the type of performance that we're going to see. That game also, NYCFC wasn't at their best. I think they're in better form now than they were then. But I would, I would be very surprised if we saw Toronto come out and blank uh, New York City like they did earlier on in the year. I'm suddenly interested now in seeing a sort of... Um future of the men's national team versus Michael Bradley if either Sands <laughs> or Keaton Parks get to play in central midfield we might see a Bradley versus Sands or Parks matchup yeah that'll be a fun one I think hopefully one or both of those guys gets on the field and, and we do see sort of a battle of the ages literally of the you know, old versus young <laughs> in that midfield on uh, later this week <laughs> I feel like we can't uh, not pre- we can't not mention Pozuelo when we preview this game he was the one that really caught my eye uh, when I saw Toronto versus DC he looks to me still a kind of different class to the rest of the players in MLS has that been the case throughout the season or did he just have a particularly impressive night he had so coming into the league he had a fantastic you know run of form right when he got here scoring goals assisting all of that he cooled down a little bit as the season progressed but Daryl you're 100% right he is still a, a class above so many of the other players in this league including you know Toronto's other attackers he played as sort of a false nine without Josie Altador uh, against NY I mean sorry excuse me against DC United Maybe even a little more extreme than that. He he was lined up at the beginning of the game as a striker, but had had license to roam and, and have his position replaced by another one of Toronto's attackers, or at times even one of their fullbacks made runs into that center striker spot. But Pozuelo is the creative force for this team. Outside of Michael Bradley, he is the primary kind of field general once he moved the ball forward into the attack. And so from a New York City perspective, stopping him and shutting him down it's probably going to be primarily on Alexander Ring in midfield is going to be a, a really big matchup to watch. And the duel between those two guys is, is going to have a big impact on how this game goes. So that's your East Coast game on Wednesday, October 23rd, uh, 7 o'clock kickoff, 10 o'clock Eastern kickoff, the West Coast game or 
seven o'clock, as Joe calls it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's <laughs> Seattle. <laughs> Seattle are hosting Rail Salt Lake. What are you looking out for in this game, Joe? And why is it Jordan Morris again? And we should also add that both these games are on FS1. They sure are. Just getting the this broadcasters ma- in there. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. This match is going to be an interesting clash of sort of roughly similar uh, lineups in in, a, in tactical schemes. I think both teams play out of a flexible four two three one that is is very willing and, and often pushes numbers forward into the attack when they have a chance. So for, from an RSL perspective, Kyle Breckman often acts as that deeper midfielder playing off of the, his other two center backs and building up from there. And, and Seattle do something a little bit similar. They have Gustav Svensson drop and, and play with the two center backs. It's probably going to be Kim Kihi and Roman Torres uh, later this week. So there I like are to think s- of Svensson now as the Swedish Beckerman. I did, I did also feel like it was, it was strangely fortuitous that you were assembling IKEA furniture while Gustav Svensson <laughs> was doing things for uh, Seattle. I 100% thought about that and wanted to make a joke about it, but I'm not Daryl and I didn't think I could do it. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to as well, Joe, and then I got nervous that I had maybe like, thought Svensson started and he had come in as a substitute, <laughs> so then I had to check and by then it was too late. So Daryl, we will need you to assemble, or Seattle fans will need you to assemble more furniture. RSL fans would like you not to do there that. There is more on the way. See, so there we go. Probably okay. arrived Right. As long as it's not from Utah, <laughs> yeah. I think Seattle fans will be okay with it. For those who are curious, I'm getting a Calax for the office. Uh, we all were, and we all know <laughs> what that is, and it's not at all nonsense uh, plywood. Go ahead, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally know what that is. I just I, I want you to explain it to Taylor for his sake. Um, <laughs> I know that there will be screws left over, and they will send you an Allen wrench. That's what I know for sure. <laughs> that feels about right. Yeah. I also know, getting back to... This this Thank match you, on that we'll have Thank on you. Wednesday. You're welcome. Um, we'll see. Also, another battle between the two teams attacking midfielders. So, for Seattle, that's likely to be uh, Victor Rodriguez. I believe uh, Brian Schmitzer alluded to the fact that he'd start if he if he's healthy, um, getting back in the team. But if he doesn't play, it'll be Joven Jones and then Lodero and Morris as well. Compared to RSL's attacking three of uh, Rusnak, Savarino, and Corey Baird, those kind of whichever trio of attacking midfielders like in the portland real salt lake game when i was previewing that game i said whichever team's group of attacking midfielders is able to have more of an impact on the game i think that's the team that's going to be on the front foot in this one so if rsl's trio have more touches and and rsl is able to play through the seattle sounders sort of four four two I don't know, mid to high block at times it's it takes different spots on the field, different lines of confrontation. But if the you know, if RSL is able to play through that, then I think they'll have the advantage in this one. And if Seattle is able to break through RSL's sometimes pressing, sometimes a little bit more reserved, not necessarily disciplined either way. If if Seattle can play through that, then Lodero's gonna have a field day and they're gonna be able to control the tempo in the attacking half. Here's a random question. Um, I've noticed that the few the few times I've talked to you about MLS, you've been kind of impressed with Seattle's tactical setup. Um, how would you feel if suddenly Brian Schmetzer was named U.S. Men's National Team head coach? He's never ever in the conversation, and yet Seattle seem to seem to have it together. I know you and Taylor talked about possible uh, head coaches, right? But didn't you not include teams that are in this stage of the playoffs? No, because Seattle were in the first round. Yeah, no, he, he have says you already Schmetzer. had this conversation. We have, we have. That, that, oh. That's the smile I'm giving you from across the table. Yeah, because I, I think Joe Schmetzer was one of the ones excluded. Yeah, uh, no, I think I think for those who maybe missed that, I'm going to summarize as Including Joe me, essentially talked about how Portland had done interesting things and then realized he had talked himself into saying Gio Savarese should be the next coach. So then he quickly pivoted to, actually, Schmetzer has done really well, <laughs> as has Luigi Gonzalez. I think those are the two that you sort of landed on from the last round. And I'm assuming that if we opened up to this round, you'd probably say Bob Bradley. I mean, I would. I, I would absolutely say Bradley. Schmetzer, 
I think he's done some good things this year. And, and frankly, my memory is so bad that I don't remember if, if I mention him at all. So I'm <laughs> going to trust Taylor on this one. Um, but I do like some of the things that he does. And I always enjoy watching Seattle play. Um, and so I'm looking forward to seeing them on Wednesday to see how, especially after watching RSL up close uh, over the weekend, seeing how they try to exploit some of the gaps in in RSL's defensive structure to see, you know, just how tactically inclined the Sounders coaching staff actually is. Mm. All right, then Thursday night, Mm -hmm. uh, we have the final two games. First up, 8 p.m. Eastern, it's Atlanta United hosting the Philadelphia Union. For some reason, I'm excited about this one. Because yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Are you expecting that to be? I just, no, I just feel like it's a good, it's a good matchup that I means see. it could be an open game. I see. Yeah. Okay. I completely agree. This one, I'm looking forward to all of these games, but I think this one, uh, and NYCFC and then LAFC, those, those three matchups are, are, I think, the ones I'm looking forward to most, uh, especially after watching Atlanta United play New England in that opening round with just how how there were actual observable tactics on the field. That's always something that I enjoy when I watch Atlanta, just, just in the spirit of honesty, there's sometimes in this league, we don't see things that make sense. And that was kind of Portland in the, in the opening week, as well as at times with the galaxy do and Minnesota United as well. DC is also on that kind of teetering between tactics and a lack of them uh, list. So seeing Atlanta try to play through midfield against the union who are uniquely capable of sort of stopping them progress, stopping Atlanta United from progressing play because they also play with a lot of central midfielders. Um, yeah. Madunian and Montero will both likely start Aronson or, or Fabian, as we kind of talked about earlier. And then uh, you got Bedoya as well in there if he's if he's able to come back from that injury he picked up at the end of the game on Saturday um, or Sunday, excuse me. But having those guys up against uh, Atlantic United's midfield three or four, depending on how you look at it, is going to be really interesting to watch. Will one team be able to gain an advantage in midfield over the other? That's that's something that I'm definitely keeping my out for. Yeah, I, I, you've just explained tactically sort of what my gut was telling me, which is that this is going to be exciting because either Atlanta will, f- will fail to pass through the press and the, and the Philly midfield, um, and then they'll be in trouble, or they will pass through and Philly will be in trouble. So one way or another, something's got to give. Exactly. I think that's that's a really good, succinct way of putting it, and I kind of wish I'd said that instead of what I did. <laughs> well, oh, you, you helped me get there. I'll, gi- I'll, give you, I'll give you a second opportunity to say clever things, Joe, uh, because we talked already that Parkhurst uh, is likely going to miss this one, Miles Robinson, the same. So I wanted to know if you could explain like what those two gentlemen bring to the Atlanta, uh, Atlanta United starting 11 and sort of what like how Atlanta will replace them, not even necessarily in terms of personnel, but like will they try to replace them like for like in skill level or will they sort of change their approach to fit the players that will come in to deputize in their absence? It's such an interesting storyline because there, I don't think there's really any other team in MLS, maybe outside of LAFC and NYCFC, that would be as bad of a matchup for Atlanta to be having these injury problems as the Philadelphia Union. Uh, Michael Parkhurst and Miles Robinson both bring Robinson a little bit more athleticism, Parkhurst maybe a little bit more of a reading of the game and, and patient defending, although Robinson's excellent at that as well. Those two guys throughout the season have, have primarily played as a central center back in DeBoer's 3-5-2. So that allows, having Robinson there primarily allowed Atlanta United to push forward and, and be okay having their back three isolated because Robinson can slide over and cover when his you know, other center back partners get, get beaten in transition. 
So he's capable of defending one-on-one as well if, if the rest of the defensive line gets caught up field or covering for his teammates. And, and Parkhurst did a great job filling in that role, which I don't think he expected to be starting a playoff game. If you'd asked him a few months ago, I don't think he would have said that. But he did a great job against New England controlling uh, the Revolution's you know, attacking players. So without those two guys, structurally, it's going to be a really interesting storyline to see how Atlanta United, how DeBoer adjusts that. Because... No, no one really on this roster. LGP is not disciplined enough. Uh, Laurentowitz is probably not athletic enough. Those are kind of their two primary center back, central center back options that they could use. So in my mind, it's it's absolutely a possibility that we see them shift their defensive structure to something a little bit more conservative. Uh, maybe they they sit a little deeper and they rely a little bit more on transition than they do on possession. But I kind of thought we'd see that against New England, and we didn't. DeBoer talked with his team and, and kind of consulted them tactically to ask what they would prefer to do. And they wanted to go for the same sort of a little bit more aggressive system with a higher line and, and bet on their defensive players to be able to win those battles. And so if the players want that same thing against the Philadelphia Union, the game, number one, could get ugly quickly if the Union are able to expose those weaknesses in the back line. Or we could see Atlanta continue to play with confidence and get the job done even with some different personnel or a little bit of a different shape. So, you know, long answer to short, I I don't know what DeBoer is going to do, but I do think it's it's going to be one of the biggest uh, factors as to how this game unfolds. I like the idea of him consulting the dressing room. I'd, I'd read about that as well. And I, I would hope slash expect that if he consulted the dressing room again, they would have the wisdom to know that there isn't a player that can play the Robinson slash Parkhurst center of the back three role. And then maybe they go to a back four. Like Maybe that's what the dressing room prefers to do. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's. I think they're smart. I think Atlanta players kind of have. They've been here before. They know, especially what it takes to win in a playoff format. So those guys, they're not. You know, they're not stupid. They they know, especially against the Union, who they've played multiple times already this season. They know what the Philadelphia Union can do and what they're good at. So I think those guys will look at it logically, and maybe we will see sort of a structural change uh, later this week. So let's close with what I think is the big one. Right, this is the one that will get the headlines. El Trafico, LAFC versus the LA Galaxy, 10.30 Eastern. Um, This game is on ESPN. The Atlanta Philly game was on ESPN too. So ESPN, 10.30 Eastern, LAFC hosting the LA Galaxy. Oh, do you expect another... It's always been dramatic, right? Almost, I think every game since LAFC have come into the league, every time there's been an El Trafico, there's been drama. Can we expect the same thing again? Can you guarantee drama, Joe? I mean, I can't guarantee it, but I think we'll see it. Absolutely, I do. Um, these two teams love to go at each other. The Galaxy have been one of the few teams in MLS this season to, to be able to match up with LAFC. And, and it's it's kind of a weird situation for me because it it's not that the Galaxy are particularly good tactically, as I alluded to before. I don't think Guillermo Barroso-Loto has, has set up this team to, to play really pretty soccer or even particularly effective soccer. But because of the personnel he has, that's fine. Uh, he might be more tactically inclined with a different set of players. But when you have Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Christian Pavon as your two primary attackers, and they, they're pretty one-dimensional in what they contribute, they, they don't bring a lot of defensive effort or defensive intangibles. So you kind of have to work with what you have. And, and when you're playing against LAFC, who are tactically rigid and, and excellent at their well-drilled, that's Bob Bradley's MO, is to to focus on the details with this LAFC team and the galaxy just kind of you know bash their way through there and, and kind of disrupt all that it's it's a total contrast in team styles and that's what make these that's what makes these games so fun and so dramatic what do you think it is that like if you had to pinpoint it what do you think it is that makes LAFC struggle 
kind of so consistently against the Galaxy? Because as far as I can recall, it's either been Galaxy wins or draws. Not a lot of LAFC wins uh, in this series. Is it like, is it, this is probably an oversimplification, but like, is it like a little brother, big brother thing of like new team coming in, they kind of like target the Galaxy as the team that they most want to knock off and that adds to the pressure? Is it just that Scalotto is especially good at game planning for LAFC? Like, Like, what would you look at if you were trying to explain why the Galaxy have been so successful against LAFC and vice versa? Or why LAFC have not at, been so successful? I think I'd look at two things, and one of them you definitely hit on in there. I think there is a, a sort of a, an established versus new team dynamic in this rivalry. The Galaxy have the experience, they have all this stuff, and I don't know how much of a factor that that truly is, but we definitely have seen the Galaxy come out on top of this matchup, or or at the very least, you know, get a draw, like you mentioned. So there does seem to be a mental block that at LAFC have in these matchups, in these El Trafico games. So I think that's part of it. And how much of that it is, I don't know. But but I do believe that that is a portion of, of what goes into these games. And then the other thing is, just the way Bob Bradley has designed his LAFC team, the Galaxy kind of play against some of the things, they, they play into some of the weaknesses that Bradley's team has. So the Galaxy don't they can keep the ball and they're willing to pass the ball around but they don't thrive off of that they don't have a hugely disciplined possession structure or anything like that so sometimes when they do concede space and and when Ibrahimovic does sort of leave gaps in their defensive structure they can lull teams forward and then attack in transition you know Dos Santos is great on the ball Pavon, Antuna, Alessandrini, Ibrahimovic they're all dangerous in transition if you can get across down the you know play the ball through down the wing in transition and, and bomb it into Ibrahimovic in the box, odds are he's going to win the ball. So, so when LFC so L- pushed L- on L- the L- Achilles heel is Zlatan's defensive laziness. I mean, <laughs> it, it could legitimately have something to do with that. It, it's, <laughs> it's absurd to think about, and that's why this matchup is so just ridiculous from top to bottom. It's yeah. ridiculously entertaining is because all these factors that, that LAFC typically doesn't have to worry about sort of build on each other. And so when we see the Galaxy sort of play on discipline defense and invite LAFC forward, they're daring LAFC to move the ball and to break them down. And if they do that, great, LAFC are going to dominate this game. And if they don't, the Galaxy are going to make their lives miserable. And so that's, that's really the balance that we look at, and that's why I think these games are so fun. So if you're Bob Bradley... And you're, you know, nicely dressed in all the Bob Bradley sideline gear. Obviously. Um, what are the big tactical or selection decisions that you've got to make going into this game? So some of the tactical points of emphasis that I would just really harp on in the build up to this. And he's had plenty of time to, I guess, actually, the, the winner was only recently decided, but he'll have at least a few days to game plan for this one. One of the main points that I focus on is is trying to limit those transition attacks. You have to, if you're LAFC, you have to make sure that you're you're counter pressing well, and that's something that they're really good at. Um, but it, it, regardless of how good you are at it, you always leave yourself exposed in some area of the field. And so, having your defensive players be ready for those transition moments and have a constant idea of where Ibrahimovic is on the field and, and Pavone to a lesser extent as well. Having a head on a swivel and keeping track of those guys, not allowing them to break into the open field is going to be huge. And then another thing for LAFC, the last time that these two teams played, uh, they weren't their midfield wasn't particularly clean on the ball, which was rare. That's not something that you know we see from LAFC very often, but that's going to be another uh, absolutely important focus point. 
without Mark Anthony K, I don't know what his injury status is after that mm-hmm. injury he picked up for Canada. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on if we see Lee win. Just he'll bring something similar, but it's just another factor that's going to be a little bit different for LAFC in this game. Making sure that they they pass the ball well in midfield, don't give it up in in like needless fashion, don't have uh, you know unforced turnovers in possession that will allow the Galaxy to transition even more. Clean possession play and then you know aware counter pressing are two of the biggest factors that Bradley's going to have to focus on in this one. If I'm if I'm like billing this one, it sort of goes like Vela Ibrahimovic, Rossi Alessandrini, Diamande Kitchen. Like like <laughs> we're, we're, how surprised were you to see Perry Kitchen involved in the Minnesota game, and how much do you think he'll be involved in this game? I was surprised. I think usually that's either you know, that's Joe Corona's had some minutes there this season. I don't know what his status was for that game. Uh, I mean, Perry Kitchen's fine, I guess. I, I, he's, I, that's, <laughs> that needs to be Perry Kitchen's, like, that should just be his Wikipedia intro, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> like, he's fine, I guess. It's uninspiring. It really is. And, and that's kind of the job. <laughs> his roster makeup is just they have this high-profile attacking talent, even, even some quality midfielders as well, not to do them a disservice there. Um, but then uh, the further you go back, the less inspired you get. And so if LAFC can can move the ball forward quickly in transition attacks of their own and isolate Dos Santos and kind of overload him and, and force the Galaxy to commit numbers to stop those transition attacks, then they're going to be able to isolate and exploit guys like Perry Kitchen or you know whoever else is playing along that back line a little bit deeper. So... Yeah, that's going to be something that LAFC lick their lips when they when they look at the back of the galaxy's structure. But I mean, if they can look at the, the ball kitchen forward, and lick their lips, there you go. Oh, that's so good. I'm going to steal that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's another major factor in this game as well. If that turns up on theathletic.com, you'll be hearing from my lawyers. <laughs> Royalties paid. Uh, every now and then, I do wonder if we're truly as nerdy as the Cooligans mock us for being. Oh, and, also, and then and then Joe Lowry says Perry Kitchen is fine, and I laugh hysterically, and I realize how big of a dork I am. The Cooligans don't even know who Perry Kitchen is. They don't. They don't. That's definitely true. Uh, Joe, one one last question for you uh, about this game, and it relates to the Galaxy one more time. It relates to David. Bingham and like the way he gets talked about sometimes is as though he is like the person who showed up late for your 11 aside game and your goalie didn't so they're going in goal like is he (laughs) as big of a liability as it seems like people seem to suggest or does he just get sort of unfairly maligned David Bingham I don't think really moves the needle one way or the other, particularly. I, I, he's we put a him fine in the Perry Kitchen camp, then it seems. I mean, a little bit. That's that's a lot of the back end of the Galaxy's roster here. I mean, he's fine. He's he's not. I, I don't think his his underlying numbers aren't great this season. I believe. I think he's his expected keeper goals for American Soccer Analysis. I think he's trending negative a little bit in that metric. Um, or, or maybe uh, I could have that. I could be misreading that a little bit. Um, I think he has had slightly positive numbers uh, this season. My bad on that one. But I don't think he's great with the ball at his feet. But that's again for the Galaxy. That's that's not a problem because they they're not committed to playing from the back. They don't care. Uh, Barcelona doesn't need David Bingham to play perfect passes from the back like we want Berhalter to see from Zach Steffen. So Bingham, I, I don't think he'll be a huge factor in this game one way or the other. Uh, LAFC are good enough that they're gonna. If they get in good enough attacking situations, they're they're going to beat the goalkeeper regardless. Um, so I don't think Bingham is going to be as much of a factor as the rest of his team's defensive, you know, backline and then defensive structure, starting with Ibra at the top. Um, just one final thing on this game. I've just remembered that uh, the last time might have been the last time they met. It was definitely the last time I really really paid attention. Um, is that the Galaxy plan was eventually just go long to Zlatan and he'll win it, right? They just use Zlatan as um, a big target man, as if he was just Andy Carroll. 
Um, and it and it kind of worked, right? I remember LAFC's defenders having a tough time uh, dealing with it. So um, I'm not sure there's anything LAFC can do to prepare for that, or is they just tell Walker Zimmerman to, to get ready? That's a, a great point, and Walker Zimmerman's another guy. I'm not sure what his status is for this one. I believe he picked up an injury um, with LAFC right before that international break course, uh, yeah, yeah. recently, and so I don't. I believe it was some sort of head injury. I could be mistaken on that. So that's another. Oh, yeah, factor. there was a collision, right? There was a collision and so, a possible yeah. concussion. Yeah. But I mean, if if he's back, or even if he isn't, that's going to be a huge focus for the for LAFC. Eddie Segura is has been excellent this season at left center back. But whoever we see paired with him, whether that's Zimmerman or someone else off the bench, you know, we saw Minnesota United center back pairing do a decent job. So it's possible to slow him down. Yeah. But I don't think I don't think any combination that the that LAFC play will be quite on the same level as Opara and Boxel, just from a defensive perspective. So that's going to be another storyline. Si- Two center backs <laughs> on each other's shoulders in one very long jersey. I love that. I think let's call Bradley right now and, and submit that idea to him. I think we'll, we'll appreciate that one. I feel like you were just trying to go the long way of not accepting my idea of stilts, and I feel personally attacked. <laughs> stilts are too obvious. You got to get two guys. Oh, my in mistake. Jersey. Of yeah. course. Come on. Of course. <laughs> All right. I think, I think we've reached the absurdity point of the show, which usually means we've crossed over the hour mark. We've definitely done that. Uh, so on that note, uh, yeah, Joe, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, make sense of the first round and then preview the second round slash make sense of that one, too. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me on and for all the help you've been doing with me behind the scenes on this uh, project we're working on. Yeah, we're very excited. And one more time, if you want to help name the show, please tweet it at us at Total Soccer Show. Tweet it at Joe in Cleats. But most importantly, remember the hashtag TSSMLS, six letters, TSSMLS, and suggest some names for the show that are better than the terrible ones I suggested earlier today. That would be ideal. That would be ideal. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Joe. Thank you listeners for listening and we will talk to you again very soon.